Hello, and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show about climate and energy issues by young people, for all people. This week, as always, we have our two co-hosts. First of them is me, Steve Chan, and the other one, more importantly, is Kelly Jang. Kelly, how are you doing this week? Good. Um, It's a little bit late right now, so we're recording this on Tuesday night. I feel confident calling this night, not evening, because it's after 10 p.m., um, but um, that's because we were both really busy today. I recently started a trail running group, which is very exciting. Um, so we went for like five or seven miles around Tiger Mountain, which is pretty close to where I live, and it was really fun. Um, we had a good turnout. Like 20 people came, including people who I didn't know and only found out about this through an internet friend who is actually my friend, but... This guy ended up not coming anyway, so it was like completely random people from the internet came and it ended up being a super fun time. Afterwards, we like went to a brewery and had a lot of pizza and just chatted about stuff. So it was really fun. And I think this was something that I really enjoyed pre-COVID. But I think since then, like a lot of these like big group events where it's kind of like meetup type thing for just like running, there haven't been as many of them. And just like doing that again, I was like, that was so much fun. So um, I guess it's going to be a weekly thing now because everyone's like, See you next week. See you next week. I was like, oh, I guess so. That's uh, another episode in Kelly's life of of enjoying running. <laughs> <laughs> Still, will never understand that. Hey, how much did you all run today? Uh, well, that time that I ran with you, we ran five k. So I'm proud of you for doing that today. Ugh. Um, I was with the uh, slower group, so we did five. The other group did closer to like seven and a half. But they finished in the dark, and they were all, like, using heavy. Is that miles stuff, or, or we kilometers? Just, by then, yeah, it was five miles. By then, we were all eating pizza already. So Not bad, not bad. Yeah. Um, Steve, um, so our viewer, our listeners, I guess, can't see this, but you're wearing an interesting shirt. Um, could you explain a bit about what it is? <laughs> sure. Um, it's called a Jinbei. It's uh, similar to, like, a kimono. It's a, it's a Japanese, like, garment, I guess, of sorts. Um, this is, like, something that uh, a good buddy of mine got me back in high school, and I, I still wear it. It's, like, kind of a summer um, fabric. But it's kind of weird, actually, because it's not all that light. It's actually, like, pretty pretty dense and heavy. Um, anyways, it's kind of an open uh, kimono-style thing. It's got some stripes. It, lo- it looks red and, and gray and green. So. Yeah, it's, it is a very nice shirt. It's just uh, interesting that you're kind of, you know, bare-chested but not shirtless because you do have this shirt. I'm all about modesty. If there's anything about me, I'm extremely modest. <laughs> I'm the most modest. Per- you're definitely the uh, most modest person ever. Yeah, I'm just wearing a T-shirt that I got at a concert that I went to in high school for, the Black Keys. So Great band, by the way. Still a band that I listen to all the time. Fever. That was the song of that time and speaking of fever while while this this okay the earth has a fever (laughs) the earth has a fever exactly the temperature is rising not only in our bodies but also on this planet and we got to do things about it and that's what we do here at the renewable generation so this week we would like to be talking to our audience about policy we're bringing it back around to politics and policy and we're going to try to stay as um, non-political as we can, but within reason, and also screw it, because this is a podcast after all. Um, so um, where, where are we at now, right? So we're, we're in late 2021. Trump is gone. Biden is here. The Dems control both the House, Senate, and executive branch, while um, the, the Supreme Court is controlled pretty squarely by um, the Republicans. What's been accomplished? 
Um, so far, the, later, the, the biggest thing that we can really be talking about is Biden bucks. You know, we, Biden has definitely done a lot um, on the pandemic, especially compared to Trump. The only like meaningful policy that we can really talk about is just those, uh, those you know, essentially the $1,200 that went into our bank account and stimulated the economy. But there's nothing. Yeah, I also got a letter from Biden in the mail telling me that he gave me $1,200. And it was actually pretty lucky because, um, so I hadn't filed my, I didn't file my 2020 tax return until like April 11th. No, actually it was like May because the deadline got extended. (laughs) Um, So I was just like waiting for that check to hit my account because in 2020 I made over the threshold. So in in 2019, I did not make over the threshold. So I was like, okay, I'm going to collect the money and then file my taxes. So So you you come to this this episode, this this show, and you also hear, you know, tax advice. So we really have it all here, folks. That's right. File your taxes the last possible second. So we also care about policy through a climate lens, not just about putting um, dollars in our in our bank account and cashing in those Biden bucks, you know, And, and, and why is it that we care about this policy? Really, right now, we're faced with the, the, the predicament of go big or go home. So Dems have a slim majority in the House and a slim, slim, slim majority in the Senate, which is only 50 and 50 with Kamala Harris, our, our, our VP, being the tiebreaker. So Democrats are also slated to lose both the House and the Senate in 2022 by all projections at this point, which, you know, there's definitely an asterisk there because no one ever knows what's going to go on in politics. Um, but... After, let's say we do manage to pass some kind of climate bill in the near future, after this bill, in the second half of the term, like in 2022, early 2022, Dems will be focused on voter reform and voter voting rights um, and, um, and really like focusing on providing, um, expanding the access of voting throughout the country, which we, we've seen a historical crackdown on voting access um, over the past couple months. All the while... Mitch McConnell is going to be doing everything he can within his protocols, within his power, to slow down Democrats in their efforts to legislate and spend money. So if and when Dems lose control. And by the way, for those of you who don't know who Mitch McConnell is, um, he is um, the minority leader in the Senate. He's basically the top Republican in the Senate. He was the majority leader, basically. like He ran everything in the Senate um, while the Republicans were in control. And so he definitely is someone who has a lot of power to do things. And he famously said back in 2008 or 2009, he said, my number one goal in life is to make Obama a one-term president. That's right. He's the grim reaper. And now he's saying that about Biden. So, you know, history repeats itself. So if and when Dems do lose control, um, we will lose all meaningful chances at meaningful climate change, uh, climate policy. Um, historically, Republicans have not passed much climate policy at all, and it's only been done through Democrats. So, in essence, this is our last chance in at least a decade to pass anything um, to warrant what the science demands to address climate change. This is exactly when we need to push. So much for being uh, apolitical. <laughs> that, that was immediately lost, wasn't it? Cool. So, we'll move on to everyone's favorite topic, the filibuster. So this is probably a term that you've heard a lot about, but basically the idea, like what you might think of as a filibuster, which is like, I don't know if you've seen the videos like Bernie Sanders lo-fi 13 hours filibuster, which is him just talking about um, like taxing the rich for 13 hours or whatever. So that's what people typically think of as like some guy or Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham on the Senate floor, just like kind of like delaying the vote um, until basically for as long as possible. But basically, um, 
in the Senate, there's this rule. I don't know who made this rule, but it's a rule that you need 60 votes to end debate on a topic. So basically, you can have the floor open for anything pretty much indefinitely unless you have 60 votes. And so in practice, this means that you can't pass any, like, quote unquote, normal legislation until you have 60 votes. And in a Senate that's split 50-50, you would have to get 10 people on the other side to support you. So in this highly polarized partisan world, it's a little bit difficult. Um, but there's one chance per year, one shot, one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted. Anyway, there's one chance per year to pass a bill that requires only uh, 50 votes in the Senate plus the VP tiebreaker or, if, um, or like 51 votes in the Senate. And that's called reconciliation, which is basically the budget. Because like they're, the founders or whoever made the rules was like, okay, even if like any normal legislation takes 60 votes to pass, you have to pass the budget because otherwise we will absolutely will not have a functioning government. So that's something simple majority will do. And so that in this polarized world is oftentimes the only thing that we can do, but um, we'll get back to that in a bit. So basically just for a bipartisan bill, you need at least 60 votes. Basically, um, you might have heard a lot about this bipartisan infrastructure bill that was passed in the Senate um, about a month ago. And so um, we were kind of talking about like why they wanted to do this bipartisan bill. And I think in part, it's probably because, you know, the Democratic Party wants to at least be like, hey, we are trying to work with Republicans to the extent that we can. And actually, this bill passed 69 to 30 in the, in the Senate, which means that 19 Republicans voted yes on it. So that's pretty impressive, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, I mean, like getting 19 Republicans on board with, um, the democratic or bipartisan infrastructure package is pretty impressive. Um, so Steve, do you want to quickly cover what's in that $1 trillion infrastructure package? So the $1 trillion infrastructure package, which was bipartisan, we're going to go through it in a lightning round here. So we got some of that money spending towards transportation projects, which would be $110 billion in new funds for roads, bridges, and related projects. It would commit $39 billion for public transit, which is the largest federal investment in public transit in history, um, along with $66 billion for rail, $42 billion on ports, airports, and related projects, and it would invest $11 billion in making America's roads safer. Um, another section of that of that infrastructure package is for reconnecting communities, um, cities that were physically divided by large highways, disproportionately uh, POC and low-income communities. Um, and this also goes in hand with uh, redlining um, and certain zip codes being economically disadvantaged as opposed to others. Um, another part of this infrastructure package would be dedicated towards high-speed internet. The bill would spend $65 billion with the goal of providing broadband internet to all Americans, further aiming to boost competition and make um, internet more equitable and affordable. Um, another section of that is for electric vehicles, which does have a slight climate tinge there. Um, this is specifically um, into a national network of electric vehicle chargers. Um, it also put another $7.5 billion towards electrifying buses and ferries. Um, it's meant to create jobs and also help tack tackle global warming, which is cool that several Republicans have signed on for this, uh, for this part of the bill. Kelly, why don't you take over for the next spot? Hey, more than several. It was 19. That's, that's, that's actually a pretty good amount. Um, yeah, so there's a couple other things. So there's other things related to climate, like $28 billion for power grid infrastructure resiliency and reliability. Um, this, if you go back and listen to our episodes on transmission, um, you know that transmission um, is a key part of an integrated grid that can uh, have more renewables. 
as well as $46 billion allocated to, in part, mitigate damage from climate disasters like floods, wildfires, and droughts. Um, clean drinking water, so there's $55 billion dedicated to clean water infrastructure, particularly to eliminate lead pipes and other dangerous chemicals. Um, and then $21 billion for environmental remediation, particularly Superfund, brownfield sites, abandoned mines, and orphan gas wells. How is that for the lightning round? Pretty fast. Zoom, zoom. Or zap, zap, because it's lightning. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Bright Power, the premier provider of energy and water management services for real estate owners, investors, and operators who enhance building performance, simplify building operations, and contribute to a healthier environment inside and out. To learn more, please visit brightpower.com. Also, we're hiring. Want to work for a company that's working to solve climate change by eliminating carbon emissions from buildings? Want to be coworkers with me? Check out our job postings at brightpower.com slash we're-hiring or go to brightpower.com and click on the careers page. All right, and we're back from our commercial break. Hope you uh, haven't missed us for too long here. So last Monday, Democrats have begun to unveil their Build Back Better plan, a.k.a. budget reconciliation. And this is that quote-unquote partisan part of the legislation, which is pretty much all we need is Democrats, all 50 of the Democrats, to vote in favor of this. Yeah, and then it'll be a tie. I mean, technically 50-50 is a tie, and then Kamala is the tiebreaker, the VP. Um, So really there are... While there are two political parties in the United States, really, Kelly and I have been talking a lot about the idea that there really are three. Um, yeah, we got the Dems, we got the Republicans, and then we have centrists. And they are principled centrists, which pretty much stand for nothing. This is, what, this is our hot take of the episode. These, these are centrists that... Hey, it's your hot take. I have no part in This is my hot take, take of the episode. So... Obviously, centrists matter a lot in our policy. So, so obviously, and this is, there's a huge amount of this where I'm just venting, and I'm also, I, I think that there's a lot of cowardice involved in these in these kinds of um, representatives. But that being said, you also I have to give them credit, and I also have to you have to understand that people like Joe Manchin, who's the senator from West Virginia and is a Democrat, he's the person who who somehow managed to win a seat in West Virginia, which overwhelmingly voted for Trump. So at the same time that I'm frustrated... Yeah, it's crazy. They win like 30 or 40 points right. for Trump. And, and, and then you got people like Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, Republican, or Susan Collins from Maine, Republican, um, who are pretty much the same exact <laughs> like archetypical character as Joe Manchin. And what they pretty much do is, is allow for a lot of politicians on the right or the left to get political cover. And they allow them to to say that oh you know Joe Manchin is going to vote this way or, or Lisa Murkowski is going to vote this way so therefore I can't vote that way and therefore appease their constituents so there's definitely a lot of politics here a lot of social games um, but what there's a lot of social games in pol- politics you don't say <laughs> right and and you know one of the things that's interesting is that a lot of times in in it seems like in politics it's more about who do you vibe with more than. Who, whose policy do you really support? I mean, the most the majority of voters don't really care about the, the politics, or the, sorry, the policy, the legislation. They care more about who do I like better, who, who represents me better. Um, so it's like, which Joe do you vibe with most? Do you, do you vibe with Joe Manchin? Joe Biden? Joe Rogan? What about you, Kelly? <laughs> Joe Exotic? 
Um, but yeah, so going off your point about the vibes, right? Like Manchin really talks a big game about like, I mean, he does really care about coal country, which West Virginia is from. And he really, really talks a big game about it. But like when push comes to shove, I think he does understand that honestly, like coal at this point is on a managed decline and probably realizes that like the best thing he can do for West Virginia is to help them figure out how they can, um, you know, move their economy away from extractive industries and embrace whatever industries exist in the future. And I mean, this is kind of off topic, but um, there's a concept where like, you know, after you've like removed the mountaintops to do mountaintop removal mining, you could put wind turbines up there. Um, and there's a lot of mountaintop removal mining that's gone in, in West Virginia and that could potentially be a future thing for them. So, I mean, yeah, it's really interesting because actually I think Joe Manchin probably has the most power to shape the federal reconciliation bill out of anyone. Like him, like he's the 50th Democratic vote and anything that he wants to do, he can, I mean, maybe not anything, but he does have a lot of power. And another interesting thing is that he's the chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. So he gets a big say in anything to do with that. And that's very closely related with energy. Interestingly enough, his counterpart on the Republican side, the ranking Republican member on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee is none other than his best buddy, Lisa Murkowski, Republican from Alaska. So they're both from very heavy energy producing states. So I guess it kind of makes sense that they are uh, kind of like uh, the ranking member or uh, chair of that committee. So it's definitely very interesting. Um, And they're pretty, I would say that their positions are honestly pretty close together on a lot of these issues. Um, But anyway, enough about Joe. For now. (laughs) So what, what, what is budget reconciliation anyways, Kelly? What, what does that even mean? Yeah. Um, so I briefly mentioned it earlier when I did my poor rap. Um, but basically, it's anything to do with the budget. So it does not include like normal legislation. So something that you cannot do through budget reconciliation is like immigration. Like that's just not that. Um, or just like, you know, um, what you would typically call like command and control um, environmental regulations. So one example of that is that in a lot of states, they have set targets like, okay, in California, they're like, we're going to be 100% renewable by 2045. In other states, you know, a a lot of states have set targets like we're going to be X percent renewable by Y year. In the federal government, unless you got 60 votes, you can't do that. And so instead, we have to try to get utilities to do that through the tax code. And hot career pro tip, because... The U.S. federal legislation is so broken and we can only pass legislation by changing tax policy. If you want job security, you should become a tax lawyer. There will be ample opportunities for that in the future. And the thing is, a lot of that will actually be in the clean energy space because a lot of clean energy companies are going to need you to help them figure out how to game the tax system to uh, help their renewable projects. This is is America after all. Everything is done through taxes and, and laws and lawyers. I, well, you know what? We should sue someone. Kelly, who, who should we sue? Uh, who should we sue? Yeah. ExxonMobil. Alright, I'm game. I think they have better lawyers than us, but you know what? We'll, we'll take them on. <laughs> I, I'm representing myself here. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. Cool. So, um, the reconciliation bill, the uh, budget office has estimated that it'll cost about $1.2 trillion over 10 years, but because it's like basically a bunch of different taxes and tax credits. It really depends on like, they're just like, oh, so if we have like seven 
$1,500 for people to get new EVs. How many people do we think are actually going to buy new EVs as a result? So they're kind of like guesstimating and 1.2 trillion over 10 years is the amount that they came up with. Um, so back to my earlier point about the clean energy standards, um, basically like targeting X percent renewable by Y date. We can't do that in the uh, federal government. Instead, we have a CEPP, which is a great acronym. It stands for the Clean Energy Performance Programs Program. So, um, Steve, can you kind of explain a bit more about what the Clean Energy Performance Program is? Sure. Yeah, and you kind of alluded to this, like um, in the past, about how we're doing all this through the tax code as opposed through you know other means. So, the Clean Energy Payment, uh, sorry, the Clean, Clean Energy Performance Program is pretty much. It's pretty much a clean energy standard, but it's done through dollars, through through money. Um, so a clean energy standard would be the same thing as a renewable portfolio standard. So you see it all over the states, all, any any state really, a majority of states in the United States. It says something like 50% clean energy by 2030 or 100% clean energy by 2050. And that's something that we've done at the state level. Um, and it's what's buoyed and, and created the solar and wind markets throughout the United States. But we haven't been able to do that on a federal level just yet. So what Democrats have done is create a a, a parallel thing to that, but through 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 the through taxes and and budgets. So really, the the CEPP is a carrot and stick program. It's it's 150 billion dollars and provides payments to utilities who meet a four percent increase in clean energy mix year over year. And it's also so that's a carrot. So that's the carrot. You get you get money if you meet that as a utility. If you don't meet that, you get fined. And that's a stick. Utilities are not allowed to fall steadily behind. Any any shortfall that you that you are below four percent increase in clean energy, it gets added to your fine. And then the next year, if you didn't meet that that increase again, it, it gets added up even more so and even more so. So it really can snowball. Um, it's meant to to keep utilities continuously moving forward, and it's incentivizing them to move forward and, and punishing them if they don't. And so basically what that means is like if a utility only increases their renewable share by 3% in one year, the next year they have to increase it to five by 5%. So total 8%, average 4% over both years to not get fined. If they're like 3 and 3, they get fined both times and they have to go up by 6 the following year. So it's basically like every year it goes up by 4%. So it's like if you're failing, you have to like get up to speed instead of being like, oh, it's okay. Like the past is in the past. Right. And, and the good thing is that this is also, you know, you get a lot of people on the right side of the aisle that say that climate policy or climate action is too expensive and it costs, it's going to be destructive to the economy. Actually, a study by the independent firm analysis group found that through 2031, the CEPP would actually expand the U.S. workforce, workforce by 7.7 million new jobs, add $907 billion to the national economy, and raise $154 billion in tax revenue and lead to over 600 gigawatts of new clean energy. So it's not a cost, it's an investment. I gotta say, analysis group is the most generic think tank title I've ever heard. <laughs> analysis like, group. It could be like lowercase analysis group. I know. By analysis group, analysis group. <laughs> exactly. I wonder what they say on their website. Cool. Okay. So rapid fire for a few other topics that are covered in this. So there's $9 billion for home energy retrofits, $9 billion for home electrification, $13.5 billion for EV infrastructure focused on underserved areas, $9 billion for transmission, $27.5 billion for a green bank, 
$2.5 billion for low-income solar and $5 billion for environmental justice and climate justice. Um, so that was all pretty fast, but there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, and then the next topic that we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive into is the ITC, or Investment Tax Credit. So Steve, you've done, you're a finance man yourself. Tell us a bit more about the ITC. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I'm a finance man myself, but I have worked at a financing company that does this a lot. So yeah, so ITC stands for Investment Tax Credit. And really, it is one of those things that um, kicked off the solar market to begin with. So initially, it was a 30% tax credit, um, which, and, and which pretty much guaranteed that any financier or an investor that stepped in and said, I'm going to pay for the construction of this solar project and then own it, is going to get a 30% credit on the taxes that they have to pay at the end of the year. Um, and importantly, this is a tax credit against people who have a lot of tax liability. So this is pretty much um, is only an opportunity for high net worth individuals or hedge funds or financial assets. Um, and what it doesn't do is it doesn't, doesn't allow people who don't have a lot of tax liability, such as, you know, low income, low income or non nonprofits or individuals to, to, uh, to claim that tax credit. Um, this new bill, um, the, the budget reconciliation package is actually going to make the ITC a direct pay um, meaning that you don't have to take that credit anymore against your taxes. Um, it actually opens up the financing opportunities. Um, so over to Kelly for a quick example of how the ITC actually would work. Yeah. So basically the way that it works right now is let's say you have a, you own your house and you buy $10,000 of solar panels. The 30% investment tax credit would be, it would be $3,000 that you can deduct from your annual taxes at the end of the year. So if you make whatever amount of money you have, you're paying over $3,000 in tax, great, that amount is taken off your tax. But if you come from a low-income household where you potentially that's lower than your tax burden after you get um, all your write-offs or a standard deduction, stuff like that, or if you actually are getting an earned income tax credit, you, can't get, you cannot access this $3,000 at all. And so this basically, I mean, in addition to the fact that you usually have to own your home to install solar, this means that only, that typically um, only uh, wealthier individuals are able to access it. From an institutional side as well, a lot of companies or um, organizations that want to install solar have to typically go to a tax equity kind of like middleman banker type of person. So they work with big companies that have a lot of tax burden and they're like, okay, like this financier will be the one who's technically going to be reaping the benefit of this 30% investment tax credit. And so these lawyers are making, you know, some cut um, in the middle, um, trying to because they're able to like broker this connection between the person who can take advantage of the tax credit and the people who are actually building the solar project. So the difference with the direct pay is basically like you don't need to have a tax burden. Like if you don't pay taxes, they the government will send you a check for three thousand dollars. And this really opens the whole space up, particularly for affordable housing providers, nonprofits, and tribal governments who don't have a lot of tax burden to be like, oh yeah, we can install solar and also get a check. Win, win, win all around. So that's very exciting. It's very niche, but uh, we thought we would call it out. And sh shout out to Amanda Clevenger from Bright Power for uh, pointing this out to us. So other things on the on this package is um, they are also reviving and expanding the EV tax credit, um, and they actually get a bonus credit. Um, buyers, I mean, would get a bonus credit if the automaker is unionized, which is another uh, interesting complication in this package. So, so for example, Tesla, for example, Toyota and Honda, 
these are automakers that will not really get this bonus credit. But other ones like Ford or Chevy, those do get um, that bonus credit. So there's definitely there's definitely been some uh, some debate about this internally. Um, you get a lot a lot of the best EV manufacturers are not unionized, and that's just kind of the way the market is right now. But uh, at the same time, Democrats want to support their unions and, and labor. You know, that's a big part of Democrats' uh, platforms. So you do get a little bit of compromise here, and you get unhappy people on both sides. But it's an interesting uh, middle ground uh, path for for this tax credit to go. Hey, I'm just saying I'm waiting for my F-150 Lightning. I'm excited for that. That'll get me to all the trailheads. It is really cool. Yeah, they have like a electric stove on it and like <laughs> like a plug plug outlets right into the, the truck. I saw some videos of it. I was I was pretty excited. I think I'm still going to go for the Rivian, though, personally. I don't know. I, the hype seems so cool. That's true. The Rivian is nice, but they haven't shipped any vehicles, so I'm kind of... I don't. I don't know when that's gonna happen. I mean, I'm not buying a car anytime soon, but I'm. I'm looking at it. Yeah, I. I do think though, like within between like, uh, like Tesla and Rivian, those those things is like I don't know where I'd take my car for servicing. Like if I if I have like issues with my car, I don't know if I could like find a nearby Tesla factory. But Ford, like I know I could find one, or Chevy. That's actually that is actually true. Like people who have Teslas have a lot of complaints. Like when their car doesn't do that well. Then, like, I mean, because Tesla doesn't have, like, they don't really have service centers. They have stores that are in, like, shopping malls. It's, like, it's it's very strange, and I think it's actually people do complain about that, so. Right. Okay, let's keep it moving because we, we're almost uh, out of time here. So, so happily, there's also, there's not just a much vehicle credit, but there's also an e-bike credit, which is small potatoes potentially but it's also like really cute and i i was a fan of it i like uh the idea of you know proliferating proliferating bicycles anywhere um hey bicycle e-bikes are motor vehicles yes just keep telling yourself that (laughs) it's true for insurance purposes they are counted as motor vehicles the more you know so also in this package, there's also a 45Q tax credit for carbon capture, utilization, and storage that's been expanded through the end of the decade. And this is a tax credit that essentially the government will pay you if you are a company that does any kind of carbon capture. Um, so you might hear, you might have heard of something called direct air capture, which is essentially giant vacuums that suck down carbon dioxide. Essentially does the work of trees, but um, it's a mechanical technology. Um, and also in this package, there's an ITC for transmission lines, which I'm personally super stoked for. I really want to see that go through, and I want to see like more transmission lines built in this country. Um, lastly, there is a PTC for existing nuclear plants, and that's a keyword there, existing, not newly built nuclear plants. Um, so we're really trying to keep online all the clean and firm power that we can and, and not necessarily um, spend it on building out new nuclear, which is also a controversial point to some. And there's, there's, there's tons more in this package that we could go into, but we've already spent so much time here. We're going we're gonna to draw the line right there. Um, so let's see what actually happens, when, what will actually make it through the Senate, what will make it through Joe Manchin's scrutiny and his, his uh, hand-wringing about spending money. What do you think, Kelly? Yeah, we'll see. Just wait and see. We don't really have that much control over Joe Manchin unless he's listening. Joe, are you out there? Please pass good climate policy. The people of West Virginia and your legacy depend on it. I like his vibe. I like Joe's vibe, just in case you're listening, Joe. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And one last thing that I wanted to emphasize, just like 
we really just need to emphasize how messed up it is that we're passing a $1.2 billion trillion bill, $1.2 trillion bill through the tax code. So again, if you want job security, get a job in tax. You will, the U.S., it's going to be, it's only going to get better for you. The tax is only going to get more complicated. All right, so now it's time for the segment that would have costed 5x what the infrastructure and budget reconciliation packages costs, the Green New Spiel. Kelly, why don't you hit us off with your first Green New Spiel? Yeah, so uh, I saw today an article about how Facebook is spending $1 million. They're donating $1 million to groups that combat climate misinformation. And this is kind of ironic because um, so some activist groups say they have taken about $9.6 million in advertising revenues from fossil fuel companies to do ads on Facebook. So they're like doing that and then taking 10% of that and putting that towards nonprofits working on climate disinformation, which is just like, I mean, there's just so much misinformation out there on Facebook. Like, come on, you can change your platform, your product to not ramp up misinformation and instead, they're like, oh, we'll donate $1 million to some nonprofits when they make multiple billions of dollars every year. So, <sighs> what do you think? Do you think, you think Facebook is ever going to be a climate ally? I got to say, I don't really think so. I mean, even based on what I know about their like climate and energy and sustainability teams, I think, I think companies like, Microsoft and Google are like at least slightly more actually dedicated and serious about it, but I might be biased. And that's a great segue into my green news spiel here. So you mentioned Microsoft, um, a little guy named uh, Bill Gates. You know, I've heard of him. He has a group that he founded called Breakthrough Energy. Um, so this Breakthrough Energy, for those of us who are not aware, is a network of public and private partnerships filled with members um, such as. Um, like Amazon's a part of it and, you know, gov- like the U.S. government's a part of it. Europe is a part of it, the, the, all of the EU. So they just announced um, yesterday, I believe, um, the first of Project Catalyst's private sector anchor partners. Um, these are companies, American Air and ArcelorMittal. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Uh, Bank of America, BlackRock, uh, Boston Consulting Group. GM and Microsoft, and these are partners who have just signed up and have pledged to not, they're moving beyond their pledges. So these are people who are turning their climate commitments into action by actually investing in nascent clean technologies that are critical to reach net zero emissions. So this is actually going to spur the clean industrial revolution by creating jobs and lowering the, what Bill Gates has coined the green premiums for critical tech like direct air capture, like green hydrogen, long duration energy storage, and clean airplane fuel, enabling these solutions to really scale up and get a lot of support, uh, both financially and regulatory, um, to to really like get some footing and and you know help us solve climate change. Um, so these these leaders are growing a, a growing community of catalyst partners, which include, as I mentioned before, public sector uh, individuals such as the Department of Energy. Um, and the EU Commission. So I, I'm pretty excited about this this announcement. Um, Bill Gates has a proven track record of getting stuff done, and in his uh, you know the Bill and Melinda uh, found, uh, Gates Foundation, they've really worked a lot with public and private partnerships to to do like huge 
like uh, things like you know solving malaria and dealing with um, you know uh, sanitation issues in Africa. I think he has a lot of experience here and he's tons of expertise. He's a brilliant guy and also really good with people. So I'm pretty excited about this. I'm, I'm keeping my eye on breakthrough energy and I want to see some, I want to see the industrial, the green industrial revolution really take off. I like, I think uh, Kelly and I talk a lot about uh, Jigger Shaw and how he always mentions that climate change is a huge problem, but it's also the a huge opportunity and it's uh, the wealth generation that it's the greatest wealth creation opportunity of the 21st that's right. century. And, and it's completely true. It's like anytime any entrepreneur knows that to start a company, you have to solve problems and climate change is the biggest problem out there. So, you know, you got a lot of opportunity to create some wealth here. Yeah, I think it's really cool that they're kind of taking the role of like early stage investment. That's something that, you know, theoretically like governments would do or companies would be invest like normal companies would be investing a lot in early stage research. Um, typically, like you imagine something like Bell Labs back in like 50 years ago. But alas, we do not live in that world. Our government is dysfunctional and our companies are only care only care about quarterly returns. And so we got to rely on divorced billionaires to save our butts. Well, with that segment, we wrap up this segment. <laughs> Sorry, with that green your spiel, we wrap up the segment and we wrap up the show. So if you liked what you heard, thanks. And why don't you give us a rating and review? Maybe maybe tell a friend, a coworker, a parent, a family member. Um, reach out to us on socials. Uh, on Facebook and Twitter, we're at GenRenewPod. On Instagram, Kelly is at KellyMJang. And Steve is at climate underscore Steve. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great the rest of your day. Mm-hmm.